Today I'm speaking with Kylie Quince, who is the Dean at AUT Law School and who has a special expertise in the role that access to justice plays for Māori in particular, and I'm going to be talking to her about some of the experiences that she's had through her career and the ways that the issue of access to justice and Māori sovereignty are closely intertwined. Ko Kylie Quince, uh, uh, so I'm Kylie Quince uh, and I hail from uh, the Hokianga, so South Hokianga on my mother's side and my father's side um, from the East Coast, so Tiki Tiki Ruatoria uh, down to Mahia Peninsula. Um, but I'm pretty much Auckland born and raised, so a proud resident of the Kingdom of Mount Roskill. Uh, so I've lived there pretty much most of my life. Um, so I'm, I'm an urban Māori, sort of second generation removed from uh, those tribal homelands. And um, so I, li- I live there with my partner and our three, three children. Um, and I'm the Dean at AUT Law School. I've been a legal academic for 25 years this year. Uh, so 18 years at the University of Auckland, uh, where I went to law school straight from school. Um, and this is my seventh year here at, here at AUT. So a lot of your research is focused on Māori experiences and the criminal justice system in particular. And so so what direction are you working in at the moment? What are the things that you've been working on recently? So across the career span, I suppose the the sort of big picture trajectory has been really from, um, if we say user to tititi lens, is to... um, Ask, is, is to force decision makers and the system to see uh, being Māori as being relevant and the treaty as being relevant. Um, and over the course of really a generation, the question is not whether it's relevant, but how and, and what do we do about it. So very much, um, I think, the generational shift over the past probably 10 years has been to consideration of Māori ethnicity and culture which is really in, in treaty language and Article 2 consideration, you know, is the treaty relevant and how do we protect tikanga Māori as a taonga under Article 2, to realising that the particularly the, the iwi Māori, so the Māori people who are entangled in criminal justice and, and harm and wrongdoing, are really people that... Uh, are at, at the blunt end of the, um, really, equity spectrum. Uh, and so that's clearly an access issue uh, because you can't access... So, again, in a sort of political sense, you can't you can't access the, the aspirations or dream of tenoranga tiratanga and self-determination and being in control of your own destiny if you don't have basic, you know, access to basic human needs, yeah. including health, housing, education or even food. Um, so so the, uh, the, uh, the very clear shift has unfortunately been as a result of necessity um, as to moving from thinking about high-end political aspirations to basic. It's a very easy way. I mean, I'm sure Karl Marx would say this. It's a very easy way to control people by controlling their food and access to basic human rights because they can't be fighting. You know, all of that, those kinds of big political movements are driven by middle-class people in every community on the planet. Yeah. You know, because they don't have to worry about the basic stuff, and it's usually middle-class women. You know, uh, in societies where where they can live on a single income, and people have the the opportunity to be thinking, to be dreaming about better lives for themselves, and have the opportunity to do something about it. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting the way that you frame that answer, I guess, around the concept of agency and the ability mm-hmm. to to really exercise that sovereignty on a personal level. 
Um, if we were to take a you know a blue sky approach to it, what would success look like there? Like what would be the outcome you would hope to be striving towards in terms of achieving tiranga tiratanga and what that would mean on a personal level? Yeah, uh, one of the things that um, I think we have to accept is that having agency is just about having opportunity and that people can still make choices that we wouldn't necessarily agree with or that might ultimately end in failure. You know, because I think we assume that, again, this sort of rose-coloured glasses view of of that is that you're going to live in this self-determining utopia. Whereas, you know, Tainui bought the Warriors. You know, I might buy the Warriors with settlement money because I'm a day one hardcore fan. Yeah. But I would know that's not a cool, very great investment, you know. But but sometimes when you give people the baubles, then they will make some quite, not dumb decisions necessarily, but they're not going to actually end up anywhere. So it, it's actually about opportunity. That we, have the, we also have the right to fail, we have the right to make mistakes, but... Yeah, being self-determining means being in control of those decisions. So you just need to, the equity piece, and that is for, you know, people, we won't ever, and obviously how that segues into the criminal justice field is, that we won't ever eliminate offending or people that commit harms to other people because every community has people that commit harms to other people. But when that harm is really underpinned or driven by causes that we can eliminate, um, then we should do that. Um, because, you know, as you know, when, when you're in the criminal justice system, most of the Western system is predicated on the idea of, of agency driven yeah. by choice. Um, and one of the things that we've seen, and this is probably jumping ahead, but one of the things that we've seen, it's relevant because Christopher Luxon made it relevant at the weekend, um, in terms of restricting judicial choice uh, and discretion, restricting the kind of information and and who pays for it, um, in terms of how what decision makers have on the table to, to think about, um, is that that's really important that you know we can highlight the fact that your system based upon you know the rational actor, the rational actor who gets fed and who has a roof over their head and. You know, and when you get information that says actually this guy never had it and he still doesn't, um, well, that's just not fair. Um, yeah, so it should be relevant. I, I mean, we're really getting into the space of Section Twenty Seven. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, I mean, what's been your involvement with Section Twenty Seven reports? Hmm. So you may have seen in the um, the press and the information that the National Party put out um, at their national conference a few days ago. Uh, that they mentioned over the span of five years since twenty eighteen, there were seven. Section 27 reports, and last year there were about 2,500. I think I did most of those seven in 2018. It was a deliberate choice to make this long, dormant provision that no one ever... I mean, I taught it, and I've taught criminal law for 25 years, and I used used to mention it in passing, and it was one of those things where I just thought, well, it's practitioner's responsibility to, to know about it and to breathe some life into it, and it just never happened. And after two decades, and it was when it'd been around since 1985... Nothing had happened, and, and literally, I mean, this is this is the cool thing about New Zealand. You know, we are the home of the pilot project. We're the home of two degrees of separation. You decide you want to do something, and then you just do it. And so a couple of friends and myself said, oh, shit, we'll just give it a go, eh? And uh, so a, a friend at PDS um, 
rings me up, former student, rings me up and said, I've got a file, should we ever go at a section 27? I said, yeah, and I said, I've no idea what you're doing, but I, I just had a go, just wrote a thing. I said, is there anyone in the family that can speak? They said, no one wants to. I said, okay, let's, let's do it as an independent um, thing. And, you know, I, I, I went for it and um, the judges handed it, because they were like, oh, geez, someone's had a go at this. And they handed it round and then it went round PDS and, yeah, it's Auckland, so everybody knew about it, and then it just kind of, you know, rolled into this kind of movement of an industry, which was unbelievable. And, you know, and I, I mean, there are things that I, I think it kind of got out of control a little bit, which has obviously led to the criticism by, obviously, ACT and the National Party. Um, and to some extent, the, the you know, even this government um, trying to, pull back on, on certain aspects, um, but, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's impactful. Oh, I mean, yeah. look, you, you have a client um, going to custody these days, and the first thing you'll hear after they go into custody is, can we get a 27 report? Because they'll have someone there who'll talk about the 30 or 40% discount mm-hmm. that they got on their report. And your chap who's, you know, come from a middle-class family who's spending his first few nights in custody suddenly thinks he's found the golden ticket, and you have to explain to him that the 40% report probably looked a little bit different than, <laughs> than what you're, you're going to receive. I'm sure your um, traumatic backstory of the Decile 7 school has got to cut <laughs> I've certainly had police prosecutors who pick up a report and go, oh, it's the same as the last one then, and put it down. But I'm interested to hear from you as someone who sort of led the charge on this. What's the information that you see as being really centrally important to a 27 report? Um, great question. And it's a great question because part of the sort of um, accepted mythology that's, that's grown up around um, reports has been that it's all about, as you mentioned, driving for a discount. Whereas the provision itself is looking for several things. One is the backstory. So who is this person? So the individualised justice aspect. Uh, The second part is that, and what have you done? This is the cultural information, and this is often overlooked. You know, is there something in your cultural or community background that you have done already? Do you have runs on the board that the judge can take account of in that normal exercise of aggravating and mitigating factors. Um, and, and often I would be writing a, and hearing a story that says, actually, the inequity um, factor is so huge here that this person doesn't have a cultural connection. They don't have the cultural, economical, social capital to be able to do that right now. So that that piece, I think, was a, is a very interesting aspect of the section that we didn't tap into very often. Have you done anything um, other than perhaps apologise maybe, but is there a, a process or you know, have you atoned in some way? Often that wasn't tapped. The third part that I think is glossed over in the pushback against this kind of information uh, is the, well, what could you do? Um, and that's the, so the, the, that's a high, pretty high trust um, kind of relationship there because that's often the speaker or person or people, sometimes an organisation or an NGO, who by process of this pre-sentencing um, um, journey has either been sought out by counsel, been sought out by a report writer like me to say, okay, the story is telling me this is a story of um, victimisation, um, of past sexual abuse that's led to offending, hasn't done anything about that, can you find me a provider? Or I'll find a provider and we'll get the provider to give that information about, yes, this person, whether it's 
directly driven the offending or not. So there's the nexus question. Um, or it could be an addiction story. It could be it could be anything. So that third part, again, is probably, and again, this is partly where I think some of the criticism is quasi-valid, is that you might be doing the job that a good counsel or a good probation officer in a PAC report should be doing. But I'll, yeah. yeah, I was going to jump onto that question yep. because a lot of this is information that in theory should Correct. form part of a PAC report. Mm-hmm. Um, but my experience is that Almost invariably, that's not the case. It's three paragraphs, you tend not to get a big, long story. So, so <laughs> what do you think is the barrier for corrections in particular doing a good job of reporting on this kind of information? Yeah, good question. Um, part, partly that's training. So again, it seems to be one of the things that's fallen, has degraded over time, is that for one, probation used to be a, a, a pretty you know, well thought of career pathway. People stayed there a long time, they became good at what they did, they were well trained, and the reports reflected that. Um, I, I think I would quite confidently say that's generally not the case anymore. You often, sometimes you have law grads do it for a little while, and yeah. it's, a, it's an interim job, you do it for a year and wait for the next step. Um, so, but the training isn't there. And, but I think one of the key things is, because this is, and I think this is important to say because for example, under you know, several of the political parties have already said that they are going to retrench. So before Section 27 and Section 26, which is the essentially the PAC report, yeah. um, is that they're going to go down that route, that, that we won't have these two streams of funding and getting two sets of information that are sometimes at odds with each other. I think they're missing a beat there, which is the uh, relational aspect of a, of a good Section 27 uh, report. Um, is I, I always thought, because I, I always, I mean, I did, did a couple of hundred of them, and I was always somewhat nervous about going in to do them because I'm, you know, I don't have, an, I'm not a person with lived experience. Uh, I'm clearly middle class, white passing, highly educated. You know, I have massive privilege compared with most of the people I, I, I'm going in to, to talk to. So I'd be quite... I'd think, well, why would they talk to me? What what would it be? And I, I genuinely put it down to being Māori. That's really important. Most of the probation officers aren't going to be, most people preparing PAC reports aren't going to be Māori. So being Māori, um, being a mum, I think was really important. And most of the, um, most clientele were not much younger than my son or, or around his age. And, you know, so that's a, it's a demographic I can relate to. Uh, and frankly, being a Warriors fan, like having something to talk about, you know, just, just you know, connectors. Um, so being a mum is a connector, being a fan of something is a connector. I could say, look, I understand you've got a pretty traumatic background, but I've followed the Warriors since 1995. You know, that, that's, that's a weekly, you know, serious, um, damaging relationship, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, which is not to say that... Um, you know, that's a message to say that all, all uh, you know, PAC report writers should be marked because that's never going to happen. Um, so, you know, they should be doing better in the reports. They should be trained better and they should appreciate. So, I mean, I do think they're approaching it purely, the, the critics are approaching it purely from a, um, you know, a, a, well, a financial perspective, really. Look at how much this costs, you know, um, where they're not seeing the value that it adds because I think one of the, um, the other things I've found, you know, I've learned a whole lot of things that I didn't think 
well, that never really crossed my mind when I went into that. Um, and one is the importance of being heard. This is an access to justice point, right? Many, many, because again, part of the mythology is that everybody that gets a report gets 30 to 40% discount and gets home D and avoids prison. That's absolutely not the case, um, for one. And many, many of the um, clients you would talk to, they know they're on the prison pathway, but they very much appreciate being heard. Um, and often we've had more than 100 years of, um, you know, of, of defendants appearing who would say nothing, who would talk to no one. And we don't know what was behind, you know, that facade of silence or um, was there something you wanted to say? You know, they, they didn't connect with their counsel, they didn't connect with um, anyone else tasked with dealing with them and they kind of, they treated it as a very transactional thing. Um, and it's, I mean, like anyone, like anyone that goes into alternative non-adversarial justice spaces, people realise that's so much harder, so much harder, because you are, A, much closer, you're on the same level, and there, there's no prescriptive, there's no hiding, you know. I have so many cousins and nephews and uncles that spent lifetimes going in and out, cycling through criminal courts, and they don't need to say anything to anyone. It's, it's just, you know, you just do it. And they're, they're literally not held accountable. No one, they might be at home, but in that actual process, there's nothing relational or dialogic about it. You are a, you are literally allowed to maintain your silence, which is, I find a bit odd. So actually it's quite painful and cathartic, but also useful to kind of prod people on, okay, why'd you do that? You know, where did this come from? Where do you think this came from? And I also think it's very interesting that invariably the people you would talk to, again, part of the mythology is uh, this is just a, a way of escaping liability or culpability. Um, and I don't think I ever met a person that thought that. Um, quite the opposite. They all drank the Kool-Aid of individual responsibility, even when, again, invariably, there's a very long traumatic backstory to say, she didn't have a very good start in life here, you know, and all of them ran the black sheep narrative, you know, oh, no, 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 we were, that was all fine, but I chose to do this. Yeah. And I'm like, well, really? Um, did, did dad ever come to prison? Yep. Your brothers ever come to prison? Yep. Your cousins? Yep. So that's a lot of black sheep in one family, isn't it? Because most people's family yeah. don't have, they can't see the pattern and they've completely bought into this individual agency and choice garbage, really. <laughs> so it's quite eye-opening for them too, but they're absolutely not on the, I'm on, this is my ticket out of here. They think it might be a ticket to a different destination, but I don't think, they're not under any illusion that this is the easy, yeah. you know, trip to take. <laughs> I, I think one of the criticisms that you see from time to time is this, this belief that the 27 report process enables particularly minority groups, and I think especially the narratives around Māori, mm. to get something that other people don't receive mm -hmm. because it's a pathway for them to be considered in yep. a different light. Um, do, do you think that's a fair criticism, or do you think... Absolutely. Explain a that. Absolutely. And the reason is because we've we've had hundred more than 150 years of treatment that other people didn't get too, yeah. which is why we're there. 
Yeah, absolutely. So this is, so again, this is buying, remember in, in Māori justice, so in tikanga Māori, now tikanga ongahara, the, the Māori version of criminal law or people who do harm to others, that is characterised collectively and intergenerationally. So the idea that you only pay, that you commit crimes as an individual, and that you, and that you pay for that harm as an individual in your lifetime, we don't believe that. So the, the idea of perhaps, you know, redistributive justice or intergenerational justice for atoning for the past, that's totally normal for us, but I appreciate that that is absolutely not normative from a Judeo-Christian, you know, philosophical system where the sins of the fathers do not pass to the sons, where for us they absolutely do. They absolutely do. So, so we're just talking past each other on that point, but absolutely we're getting something that others don't because we got here, because we were treated in, yeah. in the way that others weren't. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense, I think. Talking about that, though, this bigger picture of justice that, that sort of my perspective brings with it, um, Section 27 reports then are, are quite a limited way of trying to shoehorn that yeah. into a very you know, Eurocentric perspective on justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, what would the next step look like of starting to address this in a bigger picture? Yeah, completely agree. I mean, that's a great question because, of course, you know, initially, you know, so when this sort of started to take off and people started getting a bit antsy about it, you know, I thought, this is sentencing. Like, the horse has bolted. You know, someone's done something and they're about to, you know, there's a disposition about to happen in relation to that wrongdoing, so they got caught and they're about to be held responsible in some way. And this is purely a mitigation exercise. Um, the horse is bolted here, um, as you say. So it's, it's at the, very, the end of a really long saga, you know. Um, so the, the next step is to, which, yeah, I mean, I, I, whether this would ever happen, but is to look at culpability and responsibility in a completely different different way. Um Politically, that's difficult in a, in a multicultural... Politically and socially, that's difficult in a, in a multicultural society. But, you know, other other nations and other peoples do legal pluralism pretty effectively. Um, and I, and I, I don't know why um, that is difficult uh, in Aotearoa. It may be, you know, that as our demographic shift, that that will shift just, you know, really by osmosis over time. That's a flash way to say we're outbreeding you all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, by 2050, you know, h- half the young people in Aotearoa will be Māori or Pacifica. And so that means that, you know, rather than, as you as you flag, Section 27 and other sort of piecemeal things are asking, knocking at the door, asking the system to accommodate or provide for us in a very small way, as opposed to asking the system to reflect on... Actually, is this serving all the people? How how come all the people there all look like that? Um, so that, that that day of reckoning sort of inevitable. So I think, but how we you know whether we're going to do that in a um, you know really a bloodless way is a is a is the meta question I suppose is how we're going to do that? Yeah. You know? Now there've been a few trial programs recently with different district courts experimenting with different ways mm-hmm. of approaching this question of justice. Um, what's your view on some of these different attempts that are being made to try and expand the concept of how we do culpability in that setting? 
Yeah, um, so we have a number of, as you mentioned, problem-solving courts that um, tend to be centred around a particular um, driver of offending, whether that be homelessness in the Auckland District Court, uh, whether it be uh, alcohol and drugs, whether it be debt uh, in the Court of Special Circumstances. So there are a, a range of courts that are all focused on a particular social issue that is underpinning um, a set of generally low-level offending. Um, I, I think the, it's great that you identify um, that offending is caused by particular social harms, uh, and I like the idea that generally people that, you know, the, the, the principles of generally entering into a, um, uh, often a behavioural contract with the people that, that undertake those programmes and the sort of golden ticket at the end is that they will get a, a discharge without conviction. Um, that's a good model. Um, rolling that out at scale is, is difficult. So that they're all, so it, it works well for basically the small uh, cherry-picked groups with, with quite strict entrance criteria. Uh, works well. I do have a couple of criticisms of, of the model per se. So even if we had you know, an, an open purse and you could, say, roll out, and there, there obviously is the intention to roll out the alcohol and other drug courts nationwide. Uh, I don't like the fact that it's an individualised model. It still depoliticises the social harm that those people are coming so coming to the courts for. So to some extent, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with, there's almost a net widening of, it's okay if you offend as a homeless person because you can come to the special court. I'm like, well, why would you just solve homelessness? You know? <laughs> Thank you, Kylie, for taking the time to talk to us. It was great hearing your perspective on access to justice issues. And to you, listener, we hope you enjoyed this talk. Don't forget to check out our other podcasts.